This podcast is brought to you by absolutely no one. The Bold and the Beautiful podcast with Dave Vella. Who the hell is Dave Vella? How you going? Thanks for joining me. It's Dave Vella here. Welcome to the podcast. My beautiful guest today is an Aboriginal artist. He's also a singer, dancer, cultural ambassador and a university lecturer. He has taken Australian Aboriginal culture to many parts of the world, teaching children and adults alike. And raising four kids of his own, though, he makes an effort not to force his art and his cultural interests down their throat. And in fact, he doesn't push it on to anyone. But he does firmly believe that a better understanding of Australian Indigenous culture is what is needed to bring the country together. As an artist, the theme close to his heart is water, and he depicts this on canvas, murals, even surfboards. In fact, he has painted boards for the likes of the great Kelly Slater, Mick Fanning and Joel Parkinson. So I caught up with him for a chat the other day in his garage, which he has converted to his own personal art studio. So please welcome the man with the beautiful art, Dinawan. Just before we started, you were telling me about all your art that you're that you're painting now, and it, as I said to you just a second ago, it doesn't look like your traditional Aboriginal. Well, for a start, I'm using a lot more of a softer palette of colours, mm. and that's probably why it's given the illusion that it doesn't look so Aboriginal, because... You haven't got all those ochre colours and the... Yeah, and that's what a lot of um, artists have focused on, especially in, you know, the, since acrylic on canvas. So once Aboriginal art was you know, um, contemporary in the form that, you know, putting acrylic on canvas as opposed to using ochres on bodies or ochres on bark mm. or uh, even in the caves yep. setting. When did, when did it start that they started putting it onto canvases and acrylic? You're going to be looking around about the 1920s. Okay. So anthropologists were going into Aboriginal communities and they were seeing, you know, the different art forms and... Inside of the gunyas, or the humpies, or the bark huts, the shelters, there were some parents who would paint a story, you know, much like your, your nighttime story that you tell to the kids. Yeah. And so you bring that art to life, and it was painted on inside of the, the humpy. And so a lot of the anthropologists at the time wanted to bring that back to places like Melbourne, you know, to showcase it. Um, obviously, being briefcase carrying people. They wanted it to sm small enough to fit in their briefcases. Yeah. And then they wanted to, to look more like it's been in a natural frame. So you'll see those sticks that were then, you know, binded and you know, like to actually make it look like a frame. Yep, yep. Um, problem is, is bark moves because, you know, with the heat and the cold, it, it'll bend and warp it and stuff. And yeah, breaks, it'll yeah. crack. So in their efforts to actually make it look like a frame type scenario, they actually made it worse by, you know, trying to make it formed, mm. straighten it out. Mm. And then with the natural movement of wood, you know, we lost a lot of those early bark paintings. Yeah. Yeah. Was, and, and obviously nowadays we see a lot of Aboriginal art on um, didgeridoos and boomerangs. Was that originally a thing that they did? Did they actually paint those type of instruments as well? Or was it mainly just in the humpies and things like that? No, definitely the um, ceremonial didgeridoos had artwork on them, okay. you know, for, for ceremonial reasons. Yeah. For boomerangs, it was more about um, painting patterns on them or colours. So uh, boomerangs like the returning boomerang. Yep. You wanted it to create the illusion that there was an eagle above, like, um, birds that were nesting on the water. Ah. So if they look up and they think they see an eagle, then they will all come into a tighter ball uh, or, you know so it's easy to hunt yeah um yeah so there was definitely colors and patterns that were painted onto these tools yeah and and your artwork as we said it's a it's more pastely it's got a lot of the, the light it's sort of more it reminds me of the ocean reminds me of water yeah well i'm definitely going for the water theme with a lot of my art i'm based on showing people 
or re-showing people the value of water. Mm. Before, we, you know, like last year and the year before, we had a lot of time of drought. Yeah. So there was a lot of misusing of water. Yeah, there was. And, you know, places were going barren, rivers were drying up, and, you know, like then there was water being taken, so monocrops like cotton mm. can be fed, you know, and stuff. And so, yeah. I wanted to revisit that and teach people the value of water. Mm. And the best way to do that is through art, in my opinion. Yeah. So when people see it and then you start to bring them the story. Yeah. And so by doing this, you create this, the, the conversation. So you're, I mean, you're teaching in many different forms, aren't you? You're teaching through your art. Mm-hmm. You also teach through dance. Yep. Um, teaching at schools. Yep. How, does, how did that come about? Because you originally, I think back, when I first met you, you were like a, a tour guide. I met you, I think we were, it might have been seven, eight years ago, and you were, I think I went on a kayak thing in Byron Bay, yeah. and you were doing the tours there. Yeah. But you started like years and years ago doing that tour sort of guiding, didn't you? Yeah. As a 19-year-old, I was up around Harvey Bay, yeah. and we had a major focus for the tourists being Fraser Island. Yeah. And so at 19, I had an opportunity to go over onto Gurry or Fraser Island and work with an Indigenous tour company. And I got to experience what it was like to actually meet international tourists who really wanted to know more about Aboriginal culture. Yeah. They really valued Aboriginal culture in the way that they travelled halfway around the world to have this experience. Mm. And so when they sat and they listened to the Dreamtime stories, when they were entertained through the dancing, through the singing, you know, I saw their eyes light up. It was like a light bulb moment. Mm. And then I realised, okay, Australia has something really unique and strong and deadly, and this should be showcased. Mm. And it feels really good to be working in this field. So I did my best to stay in that field as long as I could. That's so good. Yeah. It's a, it, there's a there's something that I mean because I teach martial arts as well to the kids and there's something about teaching and giving back and sharing that knowledge and completing that circle like learning yourself and then giving it back that just man it makes me grow it makes me smile and then it makes me smile to see other people smile as as they're taking it in yeah yeah definitely there's a lot of feedback um, that you get from a student. You know, mm. as I said, those light bulb moments when things switch on for them. Yeah. And then to see the energy that they put into it. And when you teach an Aboriginal culture to Aboriginal children, you can see the self-esteem, the confidence in them, knowing that they're connected to this ancient culture, knowing that this language that they're hearing has been spoken here for thousands of years. So it has this, uh, I don't know, like a primitive trait that just gets awakened in them. Mm. And... Sometimes you see it and sometimes they don't get it until later that night when they sat down or in their bed at night and they're just, wow, I had a great time. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's about that self-awareness. And I think it's really important that just not the Aboriginal kids but the non-Aboriginal kids get that, um, you know, get that knowledge yeah. from, from the Aboriginal community because I think it then if we can, I mean, as we know, there's a lot, there's always... There's always tension between the Aboriginal community and the white community. There always has been. Yeah. It, it's the same around the world. And I think part I think part of that answer is to have our kids because kids don't see that shit, do they? Kids don't no. see colour. They don't see race. No. They don't see different. They don't see black and white. They just no. don't. My kid doesn't. And I think if we can instill that in all kids, you know, and the culture and get them to understand it from such a young age. Yeah. I just think moving forward, it's going to be better for, for everyone, the community. Yeah, definitely. Look, there's a lot of um, ways to celebrate different cultures. If you celebrate your culture through song, through dance, mm. through food uh, and positive interaction, then it creates this happiness around it. Mm. The people who are facilitating that space are happy to demonstrate it mm. and to showcase it. And then because they're doing it with a happiness, the kids or the audience receive it with a happiness yeah, as well. True. Yeah. And for Aboriginal Australia, we need those platforms to showcase the happiness of our culture. Mm. Um, Australia really missed the boat 
you know, even though they arrived here by boat, they missed the boat in the way that they could have assimilated a lot of Aboriginal culture into the everyday Australian culture. Yeah, definitely. They really missed the boat in the way that they could have learned a lot about our foods, our medicines. They missed the boat in knowing how our environment works. Yeah, Australians don't really, haven't really adopted the Aboriginal food, the Aboriginal spices at all, have they? No, and yet they, you know, Australia in itself made major policy, government policies to say that Aboriginal people had to assimilate into this culture. Mm. And Australia really missed the chance to assimilate our culture into theirs as well. So mm. having that, we've missed out on so much as a, as a community. Um, I asked the average Australian, um, what's your family recipe for kangaroo? Have you got a family recipe? You know, like, do you do it slow cook with red wine or do you yeah. do it fast on the barbie? And 90% of the Australians haven't got a recipe for kangaroo. I bet you a hell of a lot of them haven't even tried it. Yeah, exactly. So these are just small ways of which, you know, Australia could have been a lot more changed because Australia is the home of the soft hoof animal. Mm. We've got soft paws, mm. so they do no damage on the land. Yeah. But Europeans brought their hard hoof animal, mm. sheep and cattle and horse. When they introduced this, they took away the opportunities to explore what what proteins were here. Mm. And, you know, like if you look at any of the old photos of old Aboriginal people way back in the day, they were cut. Yeah. They were lean, you know, they were very sportive. They were, well, you know. Well, kangaroo's some of the most leanest meat around, isn't it? Yeah, and exactly. Um, you know, it's like 98% fat free. Mm. Um, full of iron, full of goodness. I can't believe as a country, I mean, look, I, I know it's a bit weird because we're eating our national emblem, Yeah. but whites made it the national emblem, you know what I mean? We made it, you know, it wasn't the national emblem as far as the Aboriginals go, was it? I mean, it was oh, a, it's a it national was, animal. Yeah, it's still, a, you know, like high regarded as a totem as well. Yeah, but know, there's no wrong in eating it, isn't it, from the Aboriginal point of view? No, it was, you know, um, some people were given as a totem, mm. which meant that they had to, their own way, look after that animal, the conservation of it. Mm. So that's another thing about Aboriginal culture is that we had a thing where we had our emblems or totems, where people were had to look after the law of that animal. And when they made sure that if you looked after this animal or looked after this plant, not everyone was eating that. So it was a small form of conservation. Mm. And so if you looked after it, then you made sure, you know, the people who were eating it didn't overuse it and made sure that there was plenty left for the next season. Mm. You know, you only take a certain amount. Like sustainable farming. Sustainable farming, mm. but on a yep. bigger scale. Mm. And that's where, you know, sustainability, environmental consciousness, their parts Australia should have or could have learnt. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you look at now Australia's history, big seasons of droughts, big seasons of bushfires, mm. they ran hand in hand mm. because of the disuse of water, mm. misuse of land, and Aboriginal people with this long connectiveness to Australia had all this information that could have been passed on. Mm. But unfortunately, we come up against like an Arthur Philip. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, wasn't allowed to, you know, teach. At those well, early well they also came, I think, you know, when they came over with the first fleet, they came over and, you know, England being England and on top of the world at the time, they came over thinking, okay, well, how we do things is right. Yeah. You know, we, we've got nothing to learn from what they regarded as savages of the, of the land. Yeah. What could you guys possibly teach us? You guys don't have any infrastructure, you don't have any buildings. What, you know, they, they thought so narrow-minded, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. And, you know, and, um, and you still find big parcels of that in the community you know you only have to look at media you know like bolt and you know pauline mm. Mm. you know just to see you know these people are still very narrow-minded still very fixed set in their ways yeah. and got the blinkers up yeah and so being an educator you know it's a lot more beneficial for australia's future mm. to work with the kids once these mob are you know hairy asses and they're set in their ways you just got to let them go yeah and just hope that Fox don't give them a bloody media outlet to do anything. <laughs> and you're you're also teaching in school, or you've done, are you still teaching in schools? Um, Not as much? I'm lecturing at the university, Southern Cross okay. University. Yeah. Uh, lecturing in Indigenous knowledge. Okay. 
and uh, yeah, been over a year at this, and, this place. Okay, that's unreal. And are you are you responsible for the course content, or do they tell you this is what we want you to do, and you've got to deliver that? How does that work? Yeah, university has its fixed content. Yeah, and it's been there's been a lot of really good writers. Uh, Dr. Norm Sheen has written a lot of the content that's yeah. taught out of the Southern Cross Uni in Lisbon. For the Aboriginal? Yeah, stuff. for, for the, in the Indigenous content. Is he Indigenous himself? Yeah. Okay. So he's a very strong Wiradjuri man. Yeah. And he's the sorry, former Sorry, can, can I digress just for a second? Yeah. What is the correct term? Because there's, from what I understand, Aborigine is no longer the accepted term. Is, is that correct? Whereas Aborigine just means original person from that land, doesn't it? Yeah, I've heard so many different arguments towards this, you know, it's, um, you know... Uh, what do you prefer? What do you, how do you, do you say Indigenous? Do you say Native? What, what do we say? Okay, for myself, when I see another person who's Indigenous, I say, hey, Blackfella. Um, that's right, the Aborigines say Blackfella to each other, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. That's like, that's like the African-Americans using the N-word to each other in a way, is it? No, not in this way. Um, this is just us, you know, being casual and acknowledging each other. Okay. Um, so what if a white man said, hey, black fella? Yeah, then that's really, you know, like stating, you know, the difference. Yeah. Um, and it's in a delivery. Like anything, when you have attitude and when you have, you know, like a, a, the accent, yeah. you can be defined as very aggressive or yeah. friendly. Yeah, true. You know, so it's in the approach and, um, you know, yeah, um, between each other, you know, like uh, it's a way that we acknowledge that we're still mob. Okay. You know, um, and with, there's another word that you brought up a few times, mob. Yeah. Mob to me has negative connotations of an angry group of people. Yeah. Is and what? How are you referring to the word mob? Um, mob is a family context. Wow. Yeah. So it's also a community context. Wow. Um, See, it confuses yeah. me because yeah. to me, it's got a negative. It's like that's, there's an angry mob. Yeah, yeah. And then my little boy plays Minecraft. And I don't know if you're familiar with Minecraft. Your girls yeah. might not play it. But Minecraft, when they talk about the zombies and all, he talks about them being a mob. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, there's all these. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's how you use it in the context. Okay. And, of course, you know, like I said, the accent and the attitude you put in behind mm, the word. Yeah. You know, so any word can be looked at, you know, in a dog derogatory sense yeah. or you know like an affirmation yeah so it's how you deliver it you know even even the word fuck you you know yeah exactly as mates someone can say ah oh, that you go oh, fuck you yeah and yeah then, exactly but yeah. if you say it in an angry tone you know really yeah. harsh it's hey fuck you yeah fuck you, you know um we say the same with how long you hang on to the w and the word dog because if someone goes you dog you know, then they don't like you at all. Yeah, but if okay. they're like, yeah, dog. Yeah, wow. You know, Interesting. then, yeah. So each so, word. So mob's a good thing. Mob's family. Mob's family. Okay. Yeah. So I digress for a second. You're telling me about your guy that writes all the course at um Yeah, at so um, Dr. Norm Sheen, um, an, an amazing human being, um, an amazing uh, lecturer and educator. So he wrote a lot of the course content that's at SCU. Yeah. And... Um, I was fortunate enough to have about six months working with him, so I got to see how he delivered it. And it was really good for me to see someone at his age and, you know, where he's at in life. So I had a mentor to look after. Yeah, that's unreal. Yeah. And you were teaching at school, so, so now you're teaching at uni, but you, you have taught at primary schools, haven't you? Or you, as in, you've, <laughs> yeah. delivered, you've delivered teaching methods by the way of, um, I suppose, educating kids on Aboriginal culture and community um, with dance, with music. Yeah. 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 Um, I've worked on all different levels. I've gone from the preschools, yep. kindergartens, primary schools, high schools, who, university. Who, um, which, which, which sector takes it in the best? It's, it's hard to say because each one is good in their own way. It's really good now working with adults at university level because you don't have a lot of the dickhead questions. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're matured and they take the information on in a different light, in a different way. Yeah. And, and, they're, um, and they're there because they want to be. They, they want to be they there. They take it, yeah. Yeah. Um, high school kids can be really hard and harsh to work with because they're teenagers. Yep. And, 
sometimes, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it, it's really difficult field. But then sometimes you can work with some kids. And you know, it's going to change. You know who they are as a person. Mm. Um, then the primary school kids, you know, they're in at a hundred percent all the time. But yeah. having that high energy, trying to maintain a high energy yeah, for that length of the day, yeah. um, at the end, yeah, you really got the dry throat. You know, and you're just like. I analyse my day by how dry my throat is at the end because yeah. I'm playing didgeridoo, singing and yeah. yelling at kids. Yeah. I mean, yeah, talking to children. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it's all good and rewarding at some levels and difficult in others. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an interesting field to play in. Mm. And then I've worked in schools like uh, there was a Montessori school in Munich in Germany. And to see how the kids received it over there, it was a really one-off thing. Mm. And they took it on and they loved it. Then there was another children's festival in Austria. I think that was way back in 2004. Mm. So to see the kids over there, how they received it and, you know, and then to go on to like islands off uh, Solomon Islands and work with kids over there. So I've seen it on many different levels. And how are you getting, I mean, obviously, going around the world teaching this sort of stuff and communicating. How do you get these gigs? Uh, just show you're deadly every single time you do something. Yeah. Um, you show you've got quality in your delivery. Yeah. And you never know who's in the crowd. Yeah, okay, true. You never know who's watching. People are going to, you know, be interested. People yeah. are attracted to good stuff, happy stuff. Yeah. So they approach you with opportunities. Yeah. Um, I'm an opportunist in the way that if something presents itself, um, and especially if it's an overseas trip, I grab it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I leave everyone and everything behind and I get in a lot of trouble because of that. Yeah. Um, but as a consequence, now I've travelled to 22 different countries in the world. Yeah. I've been to France 20-something times. Wow. Um, America five, six times. Yep. Germany 10 times. What's your favourite? Well, my daughters are French. Yep. So, yeah, you got, so you got four kids? Yeah, four kids. Two boys, two girls. Yep. Yep. And uh, my daughters are French, so there's that connection and going, yep. you know, taking them home. Have they been over there? Uh, three times in the last four years. Yep. Um, yeah, they go over every year. Yeah. Uh, Wayana is now 15. I think she's done like 17 trips from Australia to Europe. Unbelievable. Uh, she was born in London. Yeah. Passport's full. Passport's full. Yep. Uh, the nine-year-old is, yeah, I think she's done so many countries yep. as well. Um, so traveling is part of what we do, yeah. who we are. Um, two years ago, we went on a world tour, a didgeridoo festival world tour. So With the went, girls? Yeah, so yeah. we went to Italy first. Um, I played there. My daughters teased me because there was a very fat photo of me. Like my gut was just hanging out all over the place. And so they teased me because it was in every shop, every window in the whole town. And um, we went to Venice for a couple of days. Then after that, went to France, Canada, and the US. Yeah. So yeah, it was a, a big world spin. And and so them being half French, half Aboriginal, how are they adopting, say, the Aboriginal lifestyle? Do they get into that? Get into the painting? Are they playing didgeridoo? Are they? Are um, they into it? Are they into the culture? Yeah, they they know what I know. Yeah. Um, but they don't have the the zest to want to teach it because they're still children. Yeah. Um, they have presented in all different ways, shapes, and forms. Um, so they know that any time they can present with me. But we've got a thing in the family where I say it's not the Jackson family syndrome, <laughs> where dad forces the children to yeah. present or jump up on stage because yeah. it's dad's thing to do. Mm. So they know that and they know that I'm not going to pressure them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. There's, but there's an opening there if they want to explore it more. Anytime they feel free to come along and join back in, it's yeah. there. Um, and they won't be told off if they don't. Yeah. Because yeah. you were saying that um, your two boys who are a little bit older, because you're an you love surfing? Yeah. They just don't get into the surfing. Don't get into the surfing. So, yeah, as a parent, you try to give your kids the tools mm. to better themselves, show them how to have fun, be active. Mm. Um, but, yeah, don't force, you know, your childhood mishaps on them. You know, yeah. like, I lost the grand final for rugby league when I was under 13s. Come on, son, you can do this. <laughs> you can win this grand final for me. No, fuck that. Yeah. Um, you know, so they choose what they like. Yeah. And as a parent, 
I suppose I just got to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> what are they into? What do the boys love? Uh, the boys love their motorbikes. Yeah. Um, have always ridden. Um, my oldest boy is a chef, but he also wants to be a personal trainer. Okay. So he has qualified to be a chef, and now he's doing a Cert 3 and Cert 4 to be a PT. Is he the same one that you said wants to have his first fight? No, that's the 18-year-old. Yeah. Um, who's now, he's been working as a dish pig. Which surprised me because he never washed up when he was young yeah, growing now up. Now get, but now he's getting paid for it. Now he gets paid for it, so he does it. Um, still not here. Um, he's just left that and gotten into demolition. Yeah. So seeing that he's into demolition, he's into MMA, he's in Mullumbimby, so yes, he's got a mullet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who's, which, he, who's he trading with him, Mullum? Uh, with Isaac? Isaac, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so he's there and he's training with another young fellow, Cody Wadigo. Yep, Cody Wadigo. So we watched Cody fight for the Australian Muay Thai title last year yep. on Father's Day. And I was watching my son and we talked through the whole fight game. I just showed him, Dad actually knows a little bit, but I explained to him, look, this person's not fit. This person's, you know, like got skills, but didn't train hard. Mm. Look what happened, and he went, okay, he just got beaten even though he was better. Yep. And then we saw some girls fight, and, you know, and I was just, like, blown away by not just the strength but the, the character the girl showed. Mm. So we talked about that. And so I wasn't teaching him techniques. I'm not holding the pads for him. I'm not doing the whole, you know, this is the grand final. You've got 10 minutes to go. You've got to, you know, <laughs> run down the sideline and kick Knock the goal. Knock his head off. Yeah, <laughs> and all that, you know. Um, so just showing that I want to be supportive, but I'm not there to hold the pads. Yeah. And so he's going to have his first fight, and we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And how do you feel as a dad having your kid go into – because my kid trains with me, um, and, and part of the deal I made with my wife at the time was I could teach him martial arts, and get, but she goes, he's never going to have a fight. Yeah. Don't try and get him into fighting. <laughs> like, yes, darling. No, no yeah. doing that. How do you feel about your boy going into having his first fight? Okay, being here in the Northern Rivers, we've got the Beach Hotel, <laughs> which has got its amateur fight hour reputation, yeah. you know, between 11 and 3 o'clock, most Friday, Saturday nights. Now, a lot of the teenage boys over the last, you know, 20-something years have fallen into this trap. Mm. Um, it's easy to do. Um, it's a place where a lot of testosterone gets thrown around. Mm. A lot mix, of masculinity, alcohol, alcohol drugs, a couple of yeah. big bouncers at the front who meet you aggressively at the mm. start of the night. So the tone is set on aggression and, and an outlet. And <clears throat> a lot of kids go to jail. A lot of kids go to hospital. Mm. I'd rather even be in the gym. Yeah. He can concentrate where his testosterone is flying. He's in control of his emotions, and it's a great outlet. Oh, I 100% agree with you. I think, yeah. um, you know, I've, I've been around the martial arts and fighting for 35 years, and I just see the people that train and train properly are less likely to go out and get drunk and get in fights. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the knuckleheads that don't that... You know, that usually play other sports yeah. and no disrespect to other sports, but they'll be playing their footy. They, they get locked in that um, mob mentality, if you like, of, yeah, yeah. of boys and testosterone and boys in a locker room. Mm. It's like, rah, yeah. and then they go out together and that causes problems. Yeah. And look what's happened, you know, with COVID where there's not that vent, there's not that outlet for these fellows to go out in that mm. group mentality and unleash all of that build up rage and testosterone. Mm. So, you know, like where did that go in all this time period? Oh man, and domestic it, violence went up, exactly. Al alcoholism went up. So, you know, there's a world of shit going on. Mm. Um, and so when you have good people, you know, leading you and keeping that strict and that discipline and knowing, okay, you want the best out of your body. Mm. And, you know, the young fellow went to Thailand this year with Cody and they trained and he was training like seven hours a day. Mm. Um, everyone knows the traps that Thailand can present. Yep. And you know, it's famous for Especially it. Especially some of those bars where you think the girls are really girls. There's a trap. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know, then there's sometimes that urban myth gets proved. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's another story for another program. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
to see him go over there to say, right, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm committed. Yeah. I've got to focus. And because of our family history of leaving this country, travelling, you know, going, um, we've got a family trait, the Baker family. So between me and my four kids, one of us has got to leave Australia once every year. Mm. So my boys went to Japan and Thailand this year before all the pandemic kicked in. Yep. So a bit of a fist up, we yep. got to represent. Got to get out there. So, you know, to encourage that kind of thing and, you know, to know that at 18 he can do that himself and travel because he has travelled and with confidence is, you know, gives a parent, a father, you know, big sense of security. Yeah. And to know that he can handle himself, he ends up in one of those bars Definitely. in Thailand, yeah. you know, where a lot of people go crook because it's like that beach mm. hotel scenario, you know. People it's worse, so you get tickets from all around the world coming to the one spot. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, you, you teach your kids their morals, their strength and culture, which gives them their family morals. Mm. And um, to go over and value add to wherever you go. Yeah. If they can value add, then they're remembered. Yeah. 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 I, I'm a big believer in value adding and, and leaving a place or a situation better than what you found it. Yeah, most you definitely. Know? Even something simple like if you if you share with people and live in a house and you're, you're in the kitchen, leave it cleaner than what you found it. Yeah. You know, yeah. clean simple. your shit up. It's not that hard. Yeah, simple, simple little things. Yeah. And, you know, like, like I said, because my family's been able to travel and showcase our culture in other countries and they've been in a situation where they've been received you know, by all these different people in the communities, you know, mm. and it doesn't matter who they are. Sometimes we meet, you know, like uh, big celebrities, whether they're in surfing or whether they're actors, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, their shit doesn't smell like strawberries, you know, mm. everyone's the same. Mm. And so when they bring culture and they bring beauty, people receive that mm. and then they want to know a little bit more. So it creates a different conversation mm. and then yeah, my children are allowed to add to that conversation. And yeah, that's what you want best as a dad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you touched on celebrities and surfers and stuff. But you, um, I remember you, you did something for Kelly Slater. You did a board for him or something? Yeah, back, back in the day. Um, it, it makes me feel really old when I look at the footage now. But back in 2004, I was uh, in and out of the surfing industry and I was painting a lot of surfboards and I'd painted some for uh, Mick Fanning. Yeah. And uh, then Joel Parkinson ordered one and Dean Morrison. And, and, and I'm assuming they were of, with Aboriginal style painting Aboriginal on it. style, yeah. yeah. So personalised um, artworks on surfboards. Yeah, wow. And while I was doing that, and then next thing you know, I was looking up and um, every time I went to the beach for three days, there was Kelly. So, you know, we'd bump into each other. I'm still painting, you know, it's the dream job. I'm sitting at the beach painting surfboards. Working, yeah, what a job. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> watching all these mob, and as I was watching Kelly, I started seeing something about him and then, you know, and how he was reading the wave and, and I was like, okay. And then on the third day, he looks over my shoulder and goes, can you paint me one? And I looked up and I was like, yeah, as if I'm going to see you again after this lad. Yeah. And so he's like, nah, serious, I want... I board and I go, okay, look, i got a fresh stick in the car. Um, and he goes, okay, so I started painting and I got his handprints and I put it on in an old style, like in the caves. So I did this natural airbrush with ochre and he was blown away. Anyway, that was in March in 2004. September 2004, I'm in the southwest of France and dropping the surfboard off to Kelly and Joel Parkinson. And the ASP World Tour went, what the hell's an Aboriginal doing in the southwest of France with surfboards painted personally for Kelly Slater and Joel Parkinson? I went, uh, it's what I do, dude. This is me. So we ran a story that was attached to the Quicksilver Pro in France and it went worldwide. So something like 55, 60 countries got to watch this feature story of me, Kelly and Joel. And... Um, yeah, it built a really good relationship. So um, I ended up getting sponsored by Quicksilver for the next eight years because yeah, of wow. this. As an artist, not as a surfer, never never competed as a, <laughs> as a surfer, um, you know, in that time and space. 
but as an artist, so it opened up a lot of doors mm. and yeah, I found myself, you know, like really in amongst the mix of the surfing industry, bringing culture and then, yeah, it was fun. It yeah. Was, it was a good period. It, it, must, it must be nice to be able to share your art, share your passion and, and, and especially share it on something like a surfboard for a, for a man, say like Kelly Slater, who's what is he, 11 times world champion, yeah. something crazy. But he's the epitome of surf gods, you know, Kelly Slater. Yeah. And to, to do something for him on a surfboard or on a, on a medium that was never originally designed for Aboriginal art, mm. it must be really fulfilling to, to do something like that. Yeah, it's all about fusion. Mm. Uh, modern day culture is about fusing different things together. You see it in the music industry. Mm. So to see take it in food, yeah, see it in food all the time, and art, and its mediums is always an ever changing mm. platform. So to take a, you know a multi million dollar industry, which is the surfing industry, and another multi million dollar industry, which was the Aboriginal art, mm. I wasn't the first to marry them in. Um, by any means, but I was in a space and a time where people of great influences like the Kellys and the Mick Fannings were into my art and mm. I got to leverage off that. Yeah. So um, having a big ass ego like mine and, you know, <laughs> um, helped me really elevate, you know, the profile. Is there any medium that you would like to paint that you haven't? Oh. I would really, at the moment, um, with my art, I would like to have my art transferred onto silk dresses or onto a bed linen range. Ooh. So that is something, you know, I'm looking into. Yeah, that's interesting. And, um, yeah, I think uh, I'd like to see, you know, a, a lot of women out there have the chance to wear my art. In um, bed with Dinoa? Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that, that way they all get a chance to take me home. Yes, though. they all get a chance to hop it over to you. <laughs> hey, by, by the way, Dinoa, I, I did a bit of research on that. That means emu. Yep. So is that meant to be your spirit animal? Is that how that works? How does, or is that meant to be, you know, you spoke before about totems and how you had to look after certain things. Was, yep. was that meant to be yours? Yeah. Um, if you actually look at a lot of the traits of the emu, we draw a lot of parallels as the male emu that raises the, the babies until they're old enough and fit enough to look after themselves. Mm. So being, you know, a, a father raising his children on his own, that's just a natural trait. Um, we're also really inquisitive in the way that we want to go over and have a look at everything yeah. and, and check it out. So uh, that was my approach to the world. I just wanted to go and look at everything and, and see what was out there and then to bring it back and be the stronger father. Mm. So, yeah. And do you, have you, because <coughs> your, your birth name is Michael Baker, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. When did you start getting referred to as Dinamon? Was that something that was also sort of um, happened at birth? Was that sort of part of it? Or was it something you sort of no, developed I, I, later on? I really grew into it. Um, and when I became a really, a lot more in that cultural space presenting, facilitating, uh, singing and dancing, didgeridooing. So it became a, you know, a stronger element of that stage presence, that mm. name, and um, one that people could refer to because there's a million Michaels. Yeah. You know, and so I wanted that to be a standout and yeah, build my business, my identity, my profile, mm. and yeah, and all the advertising, the marketing. Yeah. You know, that all played into it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously you've, you know, for the last you know, big part of your life, you've been here in this Northern Rivers. Um, how do you find, as an Aboriginal man, how do you find, there's a lot of fake people here. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bullshit when it comes to relations between Aboriginals and whites and stuff. How do you find it? How, what's your perception of it all? It's... When you're dealing with the average Australian community, you know, with the depths of racism, like you only have to go over the Great Divide back at Tenerfield and you see the segregation in communities, mm. you know, where it is black and white, you know, it's this side of the street, that side of the street. Is that still that, happening now, is it? Oh, fuck yeah. This is Australia, dude. Wow. You know, um, 
so when you're in the Northern Rivers, you don't have that in-your-face racism yeah. like you do, you know, two hours, you know, west of here. Yeah. So that's more accommodating and it's more, okay, I can raise my kids up without that fear mm. of a Kalgoorlie Ethan incident, you know, like with that young fellow. What's that, what's, what's that one? Young fellow got run down on his motorbike, you know, because this fellow thought he stole his child's motorbike. So he ran him over with a car and killed him, you know, um... And the family got let off. Um, you know, this is Australia. Yeah. So, you know, our kids, you know, uh, are still doing tough. Yeah. You know, we've got the high incarceration rates, you know, got over-policing. I think there's something, I was, I was looking at some statistics the other day, because Ab Aboriginal, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders make up about 3.3% of mm. uh, the Australian population. Yep. Yet Aborigines or Aboriginals represent, I think, 28% of people in jails some places even higher mm. there was one part there the juvenile um, incarceration rate in northern territory was high 90 percent mm. um, so there was Fuck. like yeah over nine you know aboriginal kids to one white kid mm. over policing you know a lot of this racism so you don't have to deal with that in your face here in the northern rivers but you've got the overcompensation where you've got the ones who just want to be black and you know, and then uh, you know, want to be told all the dreaming stories in five minutes. Mm. You know, it's like, listen, we're really sorry about the stolen generation, but give me all your culture. Yeah. And they want it fast tracked. They want it, and that's that's a difficult one too because you can see that they've got a want to learn. Yeah. But then they've got to learn about patience and respect. Yeah. yeah. So it's like we're not going to give you everything until you sit the fuck down. Mm. Going to teach you the power of ningana, which is just to sit still and be quiet. Mm. And some people don't have that patience. They want it right now, right here. Mm. And like I said, that's a good thing, but it's a damaging thing too because for myself, I had to sit with old people for a long time to get my information. Mm. I'm not going to give it up straight away. Yeah. Then you got the other chance where with tourism and there's a good chance of ergonomics coming into play where you can actually work on country, talking about country, work with tourism. But the problem is Aboriginal people don't have the monies to start up businesses. Mm. So we don't have the monies to buy infrastructure. We don't have the monies to buy the four wheel drives to take you on country mm. or the kayaks or, you know, so how do you go to a bank and say, I've got a really good idea. It's a really good business plan, but I got fuck all to start it up. The bank's going to look at you and go, well, I'm sorry, but um, you've got no like work history in your family. Yeah. You go, Dude, my grandmother was getting all of her wages taken off her because she was told she was Aboriginal. So she had her wages garnished. So I don't have any natural inheritance mm. um, because of the whole Captain Cook incident, I don't have access to land to borrow against my land anymore. Yeah. You know, so we don't have that infrastructure or uh, something to borrow against ourselves except for our own idea. And then a bank will look at us with wide eyes and go, ah, nah, nah, you're right. Isn't there some sort of government funding for, you know, ideas that promote cultural, you know, things like that from the Aboriginal standpoint where you're, promoting culture and promoting integration isn't there something that the government gives towards that or not really oh uh, yeah it'd be good if they gave a fuck um <laughs> but they don't yeah there's a lot of you know like different community incentives and a lot of different schemes that they've tried and tried and tried um I, i'll give you a case in point when i wanted to start my business and i wanted to build myself up build my profile, show that I'm a businessman. So I backed myself, I went overseas, I made myself an industry over there, and I said, right here, here I am, and I proved myself. Now, for the next five years, I went back over and I did it and I did it, and then I got to the point where it was like, I can bring a dance troupe over, I can bring more people, I can share the love. Then when I went to apply for it, they said, well, you've proved yourself for the last five years, you can do it on your own. So. See you, lad. Oh, I'm like, oh, shit, I had to prove myself that yeah. it can be made and done. Yeah. Then, you know, you say, we can't give you anything unless you prove yourself. But then when you overprove yourself, you're told, no, you, you can keep on proving you yourself. Yeah. So you're like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. I, okay. And then if you spend a couple of months as an individual trying to write for grants 
and then you ask them for that money and if it doesn't go through because you're not a good grant writer or you didn't someone else had a better plan mm. i could have made the same kind of monies in those couple of months mm. and not you know put that time into paperwork and hoping that shit gets done or yeah. you know a handout so yeah there are a lot of things you know community incentives there are different government ways you know to help boost you up and give you a hand up mm. and stuff like that but then some of the processes can be years and years in the making you know people can be waiting three years for a home loan mm. you know that goes through i think it's like iba or something like that yeah. indigenous business australia and yet you're like shit. if i went through the bank i could have had it in six months yeah so what happens in that two and a half years you know it's all red tape bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. a lot of demographics change in families. Yeah. You know? What if the wife goes, oh, you failed, you couldn't even get us a house? Mm. I'm like, oh, fuck, well, we've been waiting to do it. You know, it's, yeah. it's these are strains, yeah. that, you know, that we have to come against. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really difficult when you're trying to work and live in, a, in this community now and then trying to live off culture. Mm-hmm. How do you marry both in and make sustainability in both areas? Mm. And uh, yeah, it's a very is difficult thing road. For, is that a thing for a lot of Aboriginals of trying to hang on to their culture but still live in this white world, if you like, you know? Yeah, it's very difficult because we don't have places where we can practice culture that are readily available for people. Yeah. Okay, you look in this Northern Rivers area, we've got halls, we've got churches, we've got, you know, like all these different places in which people can have dance, they can have bingo, they can have, you know, what, barn dancing and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But there isn't any of that that's available to the Indigenous community Are you serious? Here. We've got nothing like that in this area? For Banyara Culture Collective have been fundraising and raising monies to hire these halls and we go into contracts and there were people who were just double booking even though we had our space paid for claimed and said that's our spot then they were double booking and taking people for weddings or parties or anything and then we'd go and we'd try another hall not available not available not available and then it's very difficult so trying to get a group of people you know to practice culture together very hard um, when you don't have a space i'm surprised we don't have a standalone Hmm. aboriginal hall or some sort of area where that is just that's what it is yeah it's 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 100 dedicated to that yeah but why can't we get that how many churches we've got in the area oh man how many churches are actually practicing culture with regular people in an audience no that is, uh, you go to New Zealand. They're spreading Mariahs. propaganda. You go to New Zealand, there's Mariahs all over the place. Oh, man. And when I was there last, I was driving around just going, oh, oh, I love it here. Yeah. This is so good. New Zealand is so different with their acceptance of the, the Maori culture, aren't they? Mm, it's, very. A, it's a totally different integration of how that's worked. Yeah, and that stems from them having the Waitangi Treaty way back in the day. Yeah. There was respect for the people. Okay, yeah. yeah, they were a lot more war craft. They had a lot more, you know, resistance in that respects. And they beat the shit out of the English when they first came there, which made them then think, okay, let's go into the treaty mode. Well, they stood up for themselves, didn't they? They very much did. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that treaty being respected way back then has led to a lot of more cultural fusion Mm. in the country now and you know and it's really good to see how much respect's there i would go there and listen to 80 percent of the people speaking maldi fall in love with it Mm. i didn't understand it but the fact that i'd hear language Mm. just radiating all over the place it was very uh, accommodating very rewarding and um yeah you sort of think okay if australia had that treaty back in the day if we had a chance, you know, for them mobs to actually assimilate into Aboriginal culture, not the reverse of it, mm. and just fully, you know, thinking of only one side assimilating, then we would have yeah. a lot more of a, you know, yeah. a better we, country. We, we, they, they, they blended really nicely over there, mm. and we just haven't been able to do it. And I've always thought that it's some, some of it's got to do in some part, some of it's got to do in some part with 
the fact that the Maoris were warriors and they, they yeah. put up resistance. Yeah. And the Aboriginal people weren't fighters, they weren't warriors. Yeah. Um, have a look at history in the Eora people, um, Pemoy. Pemoy still led an 11 year resistance war in the um, Eora Basin, in the Sydney Basin. Okay. Um, he, he, yeah, for 12 years, 11 years something, he led this resistance war. He nearly starved the English out and sent them home. Um, and so we did have these resistance fighters. You know, we had uh, Jundamara up in the Kimberleys and we had uh, Wanderon, uh, Wiradjuri man. So there were still these followers, but because of the Australian culture, they really didn't encapsulate these warriors and these people in mm. Australian folklore. Mm. Ned Kelly, everyone knows about it. Mm. And I've seen so many people have a Ned Kelly tattoo. Mm. It looks amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, it's crazy because, you know, we've had these really amazing characters who could be really, you know, written in stone into the Australian, you know, folklore. Yeah. Um, but again, hasn't been encapsulated into the everyday Australian story. So, so what's the answer from your point of view moving forward with relations between, you know, I don't, I don't like the word whites, but, you know, whites and Aboriginals. What's, what's part of the answer from your point of view to, to assist this in a, in a better format? Australia needs to listen to the truth of its history. Once you understand the truth, the ordeals, the, you know, what, uh, why Aboriginal people are so resilient, <clears throat> why they're strong in the way they are, and what they've had to come through. Mm. When Australia listens to that and, and gets educated about that, then they'll have more of an understanding, they'll have more empathy in the struggle that Aboriginal people have had in the last 220-something years. Mm. When they understand that, then what it'll do, it'll actually open up conversations where we can talk in a safe space about what's needed to change. What needs to be changed is Australia's attitude to Aboriginal people and the way that we're over-policed, over-governed. You know, we don't need that shit. Mm. We need a place to show, to showcase the beauty of our culture and mm. we'll happily teach because we are the holders of thousands and thousands of years of culture oldest continuous culture in the world. Mm. No other culture has been dancing and singing and, uh, and practicing culture as long as we have. Mm. So when Australia admits to its faults and then gives us the platforms to showcase that, then watch us shine. Mm. Come along with us, you know, don't have to be like us. We don't want you to be exactly like us. We're unique for a special reason. I think we've also got to celebrate our similarities. There's too much, there's too much shit going on about they're different from us and they're not just with mm. Aboriginals, but mm. with everyone. And this is what yeah. racism is, isn't it? It's, it's just, yes. it's identifying differences yeah. rather than identifying similarities. Yeah, exactly. You know, like when you look at culture for a start, you know, what is the makeup of a culture? Food, water, do uh, song, dance, uh, art, art mm. you know, uh, your clothing. Mm. You know, there's all these different things that are, you know, have a similar trait. And so if you would look at that and then say, Rodeo, hey, there's a similar pattern there in your art to this one here. Mm. And we saw that. We went to Romania for an art exhibition and we saw there was a couple of patterns in this old art form and then in the Romanian one, still very much different, but there a little similarity and it gave us a chance to have a conversation. Mm. So we and talked celebrate about... celebrate those similarities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, people were really happy for that exchange. Mm. So there's all these chances to talk happy and, mm. you know, confident about who you are. Yeah. But if you're going to nitpick someone and then break them down and, you know, whether it's blue eyes or brown eyes, you know, yeah. you're going to break those things down and then use that as a way to hold someone or something against someone, you know, then that's where, you know, all the bullshit and the racism and everything is. So what about things like, on a, on a very simplistic level, things like changing the date of Australia Day? Is that an important thing for Aboriginal community? Uh, look, do they, do they honestly look at it like, I mean, you hear this, they, they yeah. call it Invasion Day. Yeah. Um, well, my attitude first is, fuck your barbecue. Um, you know, this is not a day for us to celebrate. Mm. Um, you know, it's... Because so much emphasis was on the celebration of, you know, a major genocide 
and the way that people were told, you know, fly your flags, have your barbecue, get mm. shit drunk mm. and, you know, and fight your mate because, you know, the fight your mate on Australia Day is the Australia thing to yeah, do, yeah. you know. So it's, it's like radio, you're actually throwing mud on the blood of our ancestors. Mm. So, yeah, we don't want to see genocide celebrated. Mm. So our way of changing the conversation is change the date. Mm. You've already done it 16 times already, mate. You oh, know? really? Yeah, like you look at all the different celebrations of Australia Day yeah. and there's all this different evidence that they're on all these different dates. Okay, interesting. You know, so it's been yeah. changed and changed and changed. I don't know? know why we just don't make it January 1st. That's when Australia became a, yeah. a Commonwealth Yeah, and, and all the states joined together. Why... Why don't you just, I don't get it. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, it's putting a party on top of, you know, some atrocities. Mm. And, you know, um, that's but, where that's where the annoyance comes yeah. in. The annoyance is, you know, like, so if you understood through education the pain that Aboriginal people went through yeah. and, you know, the amount of tribal groups that died very quickly because of smallpox, uh, you know, the, the way they... Venereal diseases. All that guns, sort of stuff that horse the and guns, you know. Sport over, yeah. And so, you know, like if you understood that, then you'd be less inclined to actually go out and mm. get shit drunk and mm. have a barbecue and then, you know, and yeah. Do you feel, because I think the white Australians do that out of ignorance rather than out of being pricks about it, you know? I, I don't yeah. think they're, I don't think, and and the way you've explained it to me makes me realise a bit more, mm. even though I don't even, you know, I don't even celebrate Australia Day, but it makes me think a little bit more that I don't think the average Australian going out having a barbecue mm. thinks I'm going to celebrate the genocide of the native people. Yeah. I think they're ignorant to that and they're just going, oh, fuck, we're having a party. Yeah. So I'd like to see people from both sides stop thinking, okay, you guys are purposely doing that to us to be pricks to us, mm. and I'd like to see a cohesion where people can go, okay, just understand, for whatever reason, mm. we need to understand, uh, white people need to understand that the Aboriginals are very passionate about that day because it reflects something that happened bad in their culture. Yeah. It's pretty easy for us to change the day. Yeah, and, you know, that's the thing. When we're looking at the community leaders or the, the voices in the communities and, you know, where, how it's been led, and, you know, like you only have to look at some past comments from ScoMo and just realise, you know, uh, you're a dick. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then you have media outlets who are the voices who, you know, for these people in these pockets of the community yep. and the way they get to speak outright about it, you know, mm. and, and some of the things I've heard in the media are just like, my God, you still got a job. Mm. How the hell do you still maintain a job? If I said that in my workplace, I'd be fucking booted yep, straight absolutely. away. absolutely, yeah. You know, but they're allowed to. So when you have these voices who are fueling, you know, those attitudes yeah. and fueling those people who have, you know, that prick-tiitis, you know, again, kind of personality, you know, that's where a lot of damage is done in the communities. And it's really hard then if you have a, a small group of, you know, pockets of community then are outraged and you know and they're like wait we're in pain here mm. and it's like fuck you get over it you know that's in the past mm. it's like but wait here, you're still living off the fruits mm. of that genocide mm. you know the fact that your family are over there have got a 500 acre farm mm. you know that was traditionally my family's heritage now mm. i don't have a natural um, access to my heritage mm. my natural inheritance is to walk freely on that land mm. and find the medicine find the foods find the bush tucker uh, sing the songs that go with that mountain line, that song line, that that riverbank. I don't have that access to it. And so we would like to, yep. but at the same time you're telling me get over it, I mm. can't show you how to practice culture. Mm. And I want to come back and repair this country. This country is screaming out for that connectivity. I, I think it comes back to what you're saying. It comes back to education. It comes back to truth, mm. to everyone accepting the truth of what it was. Yeah. Um, I mean... As a white person, I'm not to blame for what happened, but but we can all understand it. And if yeah. we can just start understanding each other, if you can continue doing what you do and, and teaching it at schools and communities and yeah. expanding that, I think it's just time that's going to push us through, isn't it? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it's up to my generation to showcase, you know, the to the old people that we're worthy to hold that information, that knowledge. Mm. Um, we want to deliver it in a respectful way. And then it's up to our generation to give it to the young people so that they can grow up with it. Because if you teach beautiful things to kids, they grow up to be beautiful adults. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we can aim for a beautiful country. Yeah. But when you're dealing with some hairy asses who are set in their mind, uh, you just got to let them go. We're going to let them die. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's old sayings for them that, you know, can, are consistent around the world, you know, for people like that. Fuck them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, you know there's no way, you know, you can't keep on trying to educate the yeah. uneducationable. Well, yeah, we just got to keep moving forward and hope, I don't think we'll see it in our generation, but hopefully mm. we can educate our kids so they can become better, they can educate their kids and eventually, hey, yeah, we'll all be smiling together. Exactly. This has been another episode of the Bold and the Beautiful podcast. Davella has left the building.